the phrase familiarity breeds contempt, that expression is so not true in classical music. The opposite (laughs) is true in classical music. Familiarity breeds sales. So new music must have a greater emphasis on education in advance so that we are helping the audience and potential audience feel familiar, feel more comfortable so that they will buy a ticket. Hello and welcome to Classical Music Now, the podcast by No Dice Collective. I am your host, Joe Chesterman March, and today we're talking to Aubrey Bergauer, all the way from California, USA. Aubrey was the executive director of the California Symphony Orchestra for five years, and she turned it around from struggling financially to doubling the size of its audience and nearly quadrupling the donor base. So pretty impressive stuff. In our conversation, we talk about why classical's core product will always be live music, why organizations shouldn't be allowing audiences to stream whole concerts for free without asking for anything in return, not necessarily money. And plus, and this was a bit cheeky on my part, but hopefully you find it useful as well, Aubrey gives her advice on how, uh, you know, just any old new group could uh, approach finding and keeping new listeners. And, uh, you know, if said group were to, for instance, commission new music, um, what she might recommend around that. And I do hope other small ensembles, could be a string orchestra, could be a you know, little chamber ensemble like ourselves, listen to this episode and find that as useful as I did, because I think it's a good way to approach things if you're not doing it that way already. Now, before we begin, I'm just going to do something a little bit different, because this is a bit of a nerdy marketing talk. I'm just going to introduce some basic concepts from marketing so that I didn't have to explain them in the interview itself. So give me three minutes of your time and I'll give you a little quick marketing masterclass. So firstly, audience development is the building of relationships with existing or potential audiences. So either people who already come to your organization who you're trying to develop a further relationship with or people who haven't even arrived yet that you're trying to solicit. Pixels and tracking. So you know how in emails it says, do you want to show images? and sometimes nothing happens. Well, that's because there's a a tiny, tiny pixel in the corner of the email, and that's a form of tracking. So we mentioned pixeling on websites, and that's what that means. So on basically every website you visit, I can almost guarantee there will be a tracking pixel of some kind so that that company can tell how much people are reading their stuff or how much they're watching. And it also means that they can then do what's called retargeting. So for instance, on Facebook, something that we do a little bit actually is Facebook knows how much of the video you watched so you can then retarget by 25, 50, 75%, 95% or all of the video how much a person watched not necessarily an individual it's you know it's broad brushes but that group that watched 75% of your video you can retarget them and then finally I won't bore you anymore we talk about funneling so one of the big fundamentals of digital marketing is this idea of a funnel so If I uh, go back to that example of a video that you retarget off of, say a thousand people watch that video. Uh, We have one of Malcolm playing the cello and thousands of people have watched it at this point. I can guarantee you that not all of them will get to 100% of that video. So you could talk about that as the first step of the funnel. So obviously a funnel starts large at the top and gets smaller as it goes down. And this is a little bit what we mean by the law of numbers that we talk about how on each stage of that funnel, you'll lose some people, but that's okay because that just means that your audience is getting more specific. So as people fall off and that's just kind of part of human behavior as much as anything. 
Um, so we could show that video to X number of people. And then if we then sent them a second video saying, oh, hey, do you want to sign up for our mailing list? Then you would guarantee that it wouldn't be all those people, would it? That just wouldn't make sense. Not everyone who's watching it is going to want to sign up for the mailing list. So it gets a bit smaller. And then, I don't know, say we were trying to sell a CD to people on that mailing list, then a certain percentage of them would then buy it. So it's smaller and smaller numbers at each step of a process and a sales funnel is when it's directed towards a sale at the end as an end result. So those are a few marketing terms, a few marketing 101s for you. Um, hopefully that gives you some good useful context for the rest of this conversation. Don't worry, it's not as in the weeds as that, but I thought I'd, I'd just explain some of the weeds for you before we get there. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to be on a bit of a break till March. We've now had our first 12 episodes and the progress has been amazing. So thank you to everyone who's shared the episode with your friends or told anyone else or just enjoying it. I'm I'm really glad that people are, are enjoying these conversations as much as I am. It's a real pleasure to have conversations, especially with, you know, Aubrey living in uh, California and talking to people all across the world and just getting to ask them, you know, the things that I'm interested in. So I'm really grateful for everyone who's interested in listening alongside me. So we've had our first 12 episodes, so we're going to have a, a little break till March where we will resume a kind of season two of sorts. So without further ado, here is Aubrey Bergauer, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. If we could just jump straight into it, I'd like to ask you about this hybrid model of live concerts slash live streaming that's emerging or certainly emerging as a positive option out of the pandemic or in that kind of awkward in-betweeny time while there'll still be audiences but then not entirely uh, profitable audiences full-sized audiences so I just wondered what your thoughts were on that hybrid model I think hybrid in many ways is the future of the art form coming out of this I will say first of all I believe in live performance that is what we do best live in-person performance that is what we do best in classical music and so I believe that very much but, and I also think that in terms of a gateway entry point, offering a, a digital version of that is really important. And what we've learned over these past several months is how to do that much better. And the learning curve has been very steep and we're still getting better and better at it. Really to sort of dive into this a little more, there should be some sort of freemium model. I don't think we should give away the farm for free in terms of our digital content. I think we can leverage that strategically so that maybe we stream a little bit of the performance and hopefully that gives people a taste of what we do so that, like I said, it's a gateway to a future ticket purchase. And so now when we don't have live in-person ticket purchases as an option, maybe there's a way to offer content so that we do keep our audience engaged. But again, the, the strategy behind it needs to be how do we position this for future revenue? And that's where I think as a generalization, we're missing the mark a little bit. Some orchestras are doing very well at this strategically, but by and large, most are not. It's sort of like a put the content out there and hope people like it. And, th and that's not a strategy. That's aspiration. It's so hard with classical music, I think, because you've got this huge canon of music that's performed over and over again. And you've got these amazing quality recordings available to listen to. You can find uh, a performance with video, maybe slightly poorer quality on YouTube for completely free for like 30 seconds of mm -hmm. adverts. I think it's so hard to 
have something that's that's almost worth paying for in that sense. Absolutely. I agree completely. So that's why I think that uh, when I say don't give away the farm for free, I mean, sort of what I was saying before, I don't think we should just be putting everything out there and hope that people like it and want to engage with us more. Like I said, that's not a strategy. And I also strongly agree with what you said. There are recordings, high quality recordings available of of quite a bit of the canon. So unless we are putting out something very new, yeah, it's very hard to differentiate that offering. So I think this is where the visual becomes very important. So because as we've said, to top the audio is is very challenging and there's so much there's so much product out there already. So we need, therefore, expert videographers. We need directors. So often I hear ensembles saying, you know, I just need a video guy. First of all, it's very gendered language. Uh, <laughs> but second of all, that's not enough. A video person? No, that's not how you make a wonderful production. You need production personnel. You need a director. Uh, you need, like I said, the videographers. You need editors. You need colorists. You know, all these things that truly make a competitive digital offering. And all of that is separate than the audio itself. And so the reason for that is we are so saturated with wonderful content for free, as you've said, whether that's YouTube or for a low price, we've got Spotify, we've got Netflix, and that's what we are conditioned to as consumers. So therefore, to be anywhere near competitive with that orchestras, that's where the steep learning curve comes in. We're really having to up our game in terms of the quality of the content we offer. And even with that, I do think it's difficult to charge, but that's why it, that's why in my mind, the strategy is how do we use this so that people do want to pay for in-person attendance? Cause that beats any of the digital offerings in terms of quality. So how do we make that through line, a strategy, not just a hope? Right. So for the time being for you, in your mind, you're seeing this as like a, a real long term where, you know, we're providing this to you over over lockdown while we can't have any audiences. But this is all in advance of real, you know, real bums on seats. Exactly. Uh, like a year or two into the future. Yeah, exactly. And so how do we get there? Well, we either have really sophisticated uh, tracking pixels on our website. So digitally, we can remarket to those people later and or... I say, don't give it away for free. Another transaction besides currency is an email address. Okay, enter your email and we'll give you the link to the stream. Like that's a that's a transaction we can make instead of money. And that way we have those listener names lined up so that we do have a marketing pool to go back to. And that's the type of strategy I've been working with my clients on of, okay, what do we offer people within 24 hours after the stream is over? What do we offer a month later? What do we offer a year from now? Hopefully that then, as we said, is is a ticket purchase at that time. So that's what I mean when I talk about the strategy. Don't just put it out there and hope people like it and want to connect with us. <laughs> that's lacking in my opinion. Mm. And that's so true as well, actually, isn't it? Because if you're talking about pixeling people, having little tracking codes and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. if you're putting your live stream on YouTube, you're not going to be able to retarget them on Facebook. It's just, I guess, taking a few steps back and then thinking, oh, okay, well, where do we want to see them in a, in a year's time? Mm -hmm. And then thinking, oh, well, if we want to like retarget them on Facebook, then we'll we'll need them on Facebook unless we're collecting their email. Right, exactly. Or can we embed the stream on our website so then the tracking pixel hits that way and we mm. can go back to them 
on multiple channels because we have multiple tracking pixels on our site. That type of thing is, is yeah, exactly the questions that I'm working with. I thought the California Symphony uh, website, they've got one called the, oh, what is it? There's a terrible pun in the name. Uh, oh, I've forgotten it now, but <laughs> um, it was this cello concert. And um, it had it had like a little email gate on the video itself saying, what's your email address? And even then it was like a two-step form. So then you click next and then you enter your name and it's just like all the, like the lowest friction possible. And it was like, exactly. uh, I'll put my email address in for to watch a whole concert and then the actual concert itself was probably one of the best ones I've seen where there was a 30 minute introduction where they were talking about various things but in between certain pieces there were more like narrative introductions with visuals and I just thought the whole thing was really well put together. I love that. I'm so proud that the California Symphony continues to do really good work. That is that is just the mark of it. I hope the mark of sustainable success without me there they just they continue to impress me as well and I'm so happy for them because you were there for five years yes that's right so I left in August of 2019 are you missing it oh no yes and no what I'm, <laughs> what I'm not missing leading that organization that <laughs> nobody's asked me that question actually right. <laughs> uh, I uh I don't miss my time I don't miss being executive director of that organization. I, I feel like in the five years I came there and did what I was brought on to do and, and was very ready to hand off what we had built to the next leader who, who could take it in different ways than I brought it. You know, I was there to get it to a certain point and I think the organization was ready for a different leader to, to keep going. So, and that's what's happening as evidenced by what you were just describing, you're seeing. So I'm really glad that a lot of those sort of the mentality and culture we had in place in terms of just everything being strategic, that is still continuing, but they've also, they've done so many different things, even in the year since I've been gone that I wouldn't have thought of. And that's amazing. I love saying that. So that part I don't miss. Uh, I said when I left that someday I want to run an orchestra again. That's not the, that's not what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to make an impact beyond one organization with the consulting work I'm doing. But my hope is to go back to an orchestra someday when, when the time is right. And when there's a, a, when there are players and a board that are sort of ready to go on that next uh, adventure with me, if I can use that word. So that's the part I miss is like, is, is the role and being part of a team like that. But someday that will come back. I know it will. I mean, it must be so refreshing in a different sense, like being able to teach the lessons that you learn in a very direct way, rather than the, the kind of uh, out into the ether kind of blog posts that you do, which are really great. You'd be able to talk to someone one-on-one and really be able to, I suppose, in the long term, see those people in the top board seats, in the executive seats did you form that in order to, to basically just make that happen? I know you've, you've talked about there not being enough high quality administrators. I think, yeah, that was definitely part of the plan. I remember when I was contemplating, when I was still at the California Symphony and contemplating what is the next career step for me and the quote unquote traditional path would be go lead another orchestra, add a zero to the budget, go to a midsize orchestra and wash, rinse, repeat, do the same thing there. And that I was having those conversations, being recruited for those jobs. And every time it just felt lacking in some way to me. And that's when I really started saying, okay, well, Aubrey, you got to dig deep then. What is it that you really want right now? 
and the idea like of of having an impact beyond one organization started coming to the forefront and simultaneously to exploring those other jobs I was getting calls for consulting work for more speaking engagements and I was realizing wow I really am enjoying that and so that's when having those sort of parallel paths at the same time I started realizing okay I think there might be a move here where like I said, I can do something that's impactful, that is helping other organizations, helping other individuals who who believe these same things, want to also make big change at their organizations, want to see different results than we've seen before in the industry. And being able to do that on a broader scale is where I ultimately landed. And here I am doing that. <laughs> so yeah, it's I love I love it in that way. That part is very fulfilling. I don't know. It's like the grass is always greener on the other side, maybe because there is still that part of me that says it's it's different impact you can achieve at, at your own organization as CEO. You can go deep, and of course you're there for years and years. So there's the amount of change you can affect is so much greater. But right now, it's kind of interesting with the pandemic. Nobody has bandwidth to go super deep. Right. And so for now, right. this is this relationship is working very much. People need advice. People need strategy. They need a sounding board. And that's working out very well for me right now. This episode of Classical Music Now is supported by Dorico, the advanced music notation software from Steinberg. Dorico is designed to save you time. Whether you are a composer or arranger, a teacher or student, working in music engraving and publishing, or producing music for media, it gives you the tools to produce beautiful scores faster than any other tool, so you can spend less time in front of your computer and more time doing what you love, making music. Dorico is available in three versions, including Dorico SE, which is completely free to download and use. Check it out today at steinberg.net slash dorico, and use the link in the description to show them you came from us. There must be an advantage to being an outsider in the situation of talking to orchestras or arts organizations as well, where you're able to step in and say, oh, this is how I see things, rather than like be in all those structures and, and all the... Um, I don't know, just all the kind of entrenched knowledge, but also just approaches that must build up in an organization. It seems to me that part of your job must be just kind of sticking your like your your stick in the mud and saying, no, we're going to do it this way. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, it's interesting. Most people don't call me unless they want change. So Mm. usually by the time somebody's reaching out, they have a disposition to wanting to do things differently whether that's a board member or a CEO somewhere or a senior staff person, more and more when I'm getting called, there's some sort of alignment out of the gate. There's definitely been times within my different full-time roles I've had where, yeah, stick in the mud definitely, I think, has been a challenge to overcome. (laughs) And so that's where I've become so data-driven. I learned very early on in my early 20s that the way to not be a stick in the mud is to have proof, evidence, data to back up what I'm saying. And so that just for my whole career now being data driven and really saying there's research available to us that's already been done in this industry. How do we use that in 
to our advantage? And how do we pursue those findings in a way that applies to our organization? So stick in the mud, less and less, <laughs> because it's very clear when somebody reaches out with, the, like I said, sort of their predisposition already. But I've been there. No, that's such a great approach. That's like a really, yeah, it's, you can't argue with numbers, right? Exactly. Um, you've got this very popular blog post about uh, what you call the audience journey, your model for audience development. And it's basically saying rather than having a muddle of various different siloed parts of an organization where you've got like your phone calls on one side and direct mail on the other side, maybe some brochures being sent out on the other, you've just got, a, a, you're looking at it from the the customer's point of view, the listener's point of view, where they're first going to be a um, an attendee at a concert and then they might buy a second ticket and then they might be a season ticket holder, a renewing subscriber, maybe a donor. And you've got this kind of pyramid or like upside down funnel mm-hmm. of a broad base that's kind of, you're going to get fewer and fewer people as you go up because that's just kind of, again, it's kind of just seemed like a, a law of numbers. Um it seems to me like it, like I say, it looks like an upside down funnel to me because it, it reminded me so strongly of what's called in digital marketing, the customer journey. Mm-hmm. And it follows that exact same kind of, of pyramid of like you get lots of people and it, it filters down. And I just wondered if, if that influenced your thinking there at all or if that was what was inspiring it. Yes and no. The model, I call it the long haul model because this patron journey definitely is achieved over time. And I mean, I totally follow what you're saying of this looks like an upside down funnel. And with most of my background being in marketing, I definitely understand what you're saying there. However, I would say there is a true marketing funnel before that first ticket purchase ever happens. So Mm. a couple different ways I would refute maybe this idea that it's an upside down funnel. Uh, First, I would say what I already said, there's so many more interactions we have before that first big commitment of getting somebody to buy a ticket. A first-time buyer buying a ticket, shelling out 70, 80 bucks or whatever the cost is, is significant. So that's not the start of the journey. That definitely is the end of a sales funnel. So I would say the e-commerce advertising would be the top of the funnel. That first transaction is the bottom. That then is the beginning of a patron journey, which yes, the law of numbers does make that look like a pyramid. Um, I would say also, speaking of the law of numbers and going back to data, I say in that post that you were referencing, a stat that's widely known, especially here in the United States, is that 90% of first-time buyers don't return. Well, funnel or not, we can't afford, when we're talking about a game of numbers, we can't afford that statistic anymore. So Mm. therefore, we have to focus on opening it up no matter what we call top of funnel or bottom funnel, like we have to address that number. So hopefully these different points help enforce for me why if we're talking about a traditional funnel, it starts so much earlier than that first purchase. Yeah, of course, definitely. And then you, I mean, you referenced that earlier in, in these free concerts online that would be someone's first interaction or first, second, third before they make that first purchase. So yeah, of course, there's, there's more to it than that outside of the diagram. I wondered where the like the offline side of marketing comes in for you and, and where it might overtake the digital. So I guess that could be in person or mailers or... Oh, I see. Like truly other marketing channels. Okay. I would say I am definitely a fan of multi-channel marketing. Hmm. Always multi-channel marketing proves more effective than a singular channel. So I think that these other 
tactics support what we're doing on the digital side. I think any savvy organization has very sophisticated digital marketing, and that is the way that is the way of consumer behavior. More and more our lives are online, especially right now during a global pandemic. It's really accelerated and exacerbated that. However, I still believe in direct mail. I believe in not uh, mailing to everybody all the time. That's definitely part of the long haul model of who are we talking to? What message are we giving them? And let's make sure we're not bombarding everybody with a million different messages, but instead be very focused and very disciplined on what invitation we're making to which group of people at which time, whether that's a ticket purchase, watch the season online, be a donor, you know, those are really different asks. So let's make sure we're making those asks to the right people. And we can support our digital efforts with direct mail, for example. Print, I am not so much a fan of just the effectiveness of that channel. In my mind is not worth the money as a general statement. And then from there, other channels, it really depends on what are we trying to achieve? Same thing with radio. I do less and less radio advertising. Every organization I work, we're doing less and less of that. So I don't know, we could take it channel by channel, but direct mail in particular, I I do believe still has a purpose. I suppose that's in a way, it's kind of like the precursor of email. So exactly. It definitely is targeted still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wondered if we could just go back to the um, talking about streaming a little bit. I was looking at a few different orchestras, uh, like patronage models today off the back of that long haul model that we were talking about there. And a lot of the time, the different tiers that you can um, commit more and more money to, it's basically about getting closer to the players a lot of the time, about having more contact or or Mm -hmm. feeling like you've got more contact, which I mean, I've always found kind of strange just on on a personal level, the idea of like paying for access to to people <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's, it certainly seems like the default i wondered where you thought that online memberships might tie in to those patronages or if you'd see them as as something separate oh let's see here i think a few things on that i think first of all we do have to approach the patron more holistically than we typically do that matches up with so much of what you and i have already said in this conversation That's important. I think also we have to really question the way we educate our audience, because to your point, I think it's very odd that a lot of times people don't get access to our players until they're so far in their relationship with us. They're a donor and therefore get invited to meet musicians, for example. That to me is is very backwards. And one of the things I've been championing, especially during the pandemic, and I will continue to champion champion going forward, is empowering our artists to be online ambassadors for us. Some artists are naturally very great at this. They have their channels. They have their content they put out there. They have big followings. Some are not as good. We can train them, at least the ones that want training in that. I think that's something that organizations could offer to really support our artists. And artist-driven content is such a great way to bring in people. So instead of making it this thing behind a paywall, meaning a donation or whatever the, the barrier is to have access to those people, let's flip that on its head and make our artists way more prominent at the forefront because people identify with people. Mm. And so to not use that as something early on in the process is so important. And so 
anyways, that opens up a whole can of worms of education that I could talk about and how do we offer more adult education? How do we use our artists to be a part of that and when not to? How do we use all that to think more holistically about this patron and their journey? But I agree with what you're saying that I, I think it's odd that sometimes we keep these access points until much later in the patron relationship. And I think we should turn that on its head. Yeah, definitely. I think especially when some of them can be so charismatic as well, because I was I was watching an LSO, a London Symphony Orchestra live stream the other day. It was, well, it's kind of like a pseudo live stream because the first violinist was in the chat, like mm. replying to people. And that just really grabbed me as, yeah. as something that's, you know, it's just someone in the chat, like it's, it's not groundbreaking, but it just, it added so much to it. Like the idea that this, and she's quite a cool person as well. She's got like pink hair, so she's very recognizable yeah. in the orchestra. And just seeing her like replying to people was, it, it just felt really good. Like, so, you know, that it's really open, isn't it? It's really um, approachable. Yeah, I love that. And I think also maybe access to artists, there is a way to parse it out and because some things are easy to scale having a musician in the chat of a live stream, that's very easy to scale. And how many people, however many people were watching that stream were able to see that interaction. Mm. And that's awesome. I think that's super easy. And like you said, it's not, what'd you say? It's not rocket science, but yet here it is. And not many orchestras are doing that. So I love that. But then maybe there is another way where maybe donors, donors are the ones that get the the virtual meet and greet with the same artist. And that's a smaller gathering that is offered to donors who've supported at a certain level. Like there are different ways to, like I said, to scale what are these access points so that we're, we are strategically serving the needs of the organization. We do need to steward our donors, but how much more likely is a person eventually to donate because they've had an interaction with that musician much earlier on mm. because they saw them active in the chat. So that to me becomes a through line that helps us not hurts us by giving access sooner. So what do you see as the, if we're getting the players out into the foyer, as it were, if we're, people are meeting them just kind of before the concert or after the concert, or they're chatting with them in, in live streams, if that access is now just part of the orchestra and part of the, I suppose, more towards the beginning of the relationship, what do we replace in those high tier perks of being like a big money donor mm -hmm. if access is no longer exclusive? I think that they're not mutually exclusive is what I'm trying to say. One does not, um, or one does beget the other. So in your example of if players were in the lobby pre-show or post-show meeting with patrons, there's limited interaction. There's good interaction, but nobody's going to have a half hour conversation one-on-one -on -one with that musician. There's no way because they're in the lobby and there's a zillion people that they're rubbing elbows with. And that's good. We want that. That's high touch. We have so many patrons getting FaceTime with our artists. I love that example. So then how great is it when those same patrons say, wow, I really wish I could know them better. That's what we want. That's exactly what we want. So then these, those opportunities for more intimate gatherings, that then is what I would tie to donations. And so, you know, a super high-end donor, well, great. They get to go to lunch with that musician and we thank them for their gift and how wonderful that the musician wants to say, wow, your gift impacts me in my life directly. Great. We want those interactions too. So I guess that's what I mean by scale and being able to do all of it and not have it be mutually exclusive. 
Mm, no, that, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. I just wondered how you think about income generation. Obviously, you've got these patrons and there's funding bodies as well. And there's not really a one-to-one relationship in terms of, oh, like someone bought a ticket, I made some money because orchestras or arts organizations, whatever it may be, is just so expensive to run. So I just wondered how you how you conceptualize that. What we typically do, I'll start with what we typically do and then say how I think it should be different. We typically look at income generation as siloed, earned revenue and contributed revenue. And this is what we're bringing in through ticket sales. This is what we're bringing in through donations among our donations. This is what's from individuals. This is what's from corporations. This is what's from government and foundations. And so that's that's just typically the way we think about it everywhere in this industry. And what I realized, and I totally credit Jill Robinson and TRG for bringing this to my attention, is if we redo, if you're thinking of like the budget as a pie chart, how I just described it with these funding sources, instead, look at that pie chart of patron generated revenue versus everything else, corporate grants, government, galas. Oh no, galas would still be patrons. Haha. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> if we redo the pie chart that way, any organization I've done this exercise with, it's something like 80% or more of revenue comes from people. Now I can't speak for Europe orchestras because uh, the UK and Europe, as we know, is so much more government funded than here in the United States. So maybe it's not quite 80% is from people. Maybe it's slightly less than that, but still my guess is that probably a majority of the income comes from people. And that to me, once I started realizing that, that It's not about earned revenue versus contributed, but how much our individuals can collectively a source of revenue versus these other streams. That's when I just thought, wow. And that just goes right back to, we have got to look at our patrons and customers holistically because they are the number one funding source through these different channels than any other revenue stream. Which kind of brings it full circle because then you are thinking about it like a business. Yes, exactly. And we are a business at the end of the day. I think sometimes that gets villainized a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I will say I get aggravated when board members come in, for example, and say, we need to think about this like a business. But also, they're not wrong. We are a business. We, ne- we need to find a viable way forward. Otherwise, we don't get to do what we do in producing the art that we produce. to Involution by Sophie Sully off our album Stillness, which we made five years ago. The album contains five different pieces, all on the theme of modern spirituality. They were all recorded in Holy Name Manchester, 
which has this beautiful enveloping acoustic that you can hear at the moment. We've just set up the online store on our website and to celebrate we're doing 25% off this very album that you can hear now from now until Christmas. And if you would like to get it as a gift for someone for Christmas, it's beautifully packaged and you should order by the 21st of December to avoid disappointment. Thanks for listening. There's a link in the description to buy the album off our new store. Now let's get back to Aubrey. I'd like to talk about what you might think about smaller organisations. As I mentioned, we're No Dice Collective. We're like a small new music group. And uh, it applies to us, but also generally when you're just starting out or even like a few years in, you're still trying to find an audience. And I, I remember you saying that actually audience generation isn't the issue. Mm-hmm. It's what you've been talking about. It's about creating patrons, keeping listeners coming back. What would you advise for small groups who are trying to find their audience? Sure. I do still advise, first of all, have that retention plan in place Mm. because that way any new person you get into the fold, you've got a plan for how to keep them so you don't lose them. So I still advise that first, have those retention plans in place. Then when that's in place, then it makes the acquisition efforts less of sort of being a hamster in a wheel (laughs) because there's a place and a vehicle for those people to continue the relationship with the ensemble. So When we are talking about acquisition, though, I would say this is where content is so important. So here we come back full circle to the content we're producing, Um, and especially online, because that's the easiest way for somebody to discover us is by what we're putting out there online. When I say content, I've got a whole blog post on content marketing on this, but it's not about sales content. It's not about, hey, concert this weekend, don't forget. It's not about, even if it's a live stream, it's not about that necessarily. It's about those, some of those same things that we have already said in this podcast. Here's a, here's a musician talking about why this piece on the upcoming concert matters to them. That's really interesting and that's education. And so in my mind, that's what is so great about content marketing is that we're offering helpful information, helpful as determined by the customer Oh, oh, that's so interesting. Now I see why they're doing that work. Oh, it stimulates interest for them. Oh, now I might want to watch that stream or come to that concert when we're doing things in person again. So that's always my advice when we're talking acquisition strategies, that it's about the content we're putting out there. And just to tie that back with the streaming, that's where then I go back to this freemium model of except in this virtual world that we're in right now because of the pandemic, like how would we offer a taste of the stream? Can we offer 10 minutes, but anything else people need to pay for or anything else people need to buy a ticket to come in person. Those are the types of models I like experimenting with because it shows people, this is who we are. This is what we're offering. This is what we do, but also leaving this in-person experience as the goal because that's what we do best again. And that's where the revenue is as well. Right. Yeah. And when you say retention plan, is that just capturing emails and and talking to people after their first concert? Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't have to be after the first concert, even it could, I mean, some organizations (laughs) that I work with, they say, Aubrey, we're capturing all the emails. Okay. Then what, what happens (laughs) when somebody joins your email list? What is, do you have a drip campaign set up over the next few days, telling them what you're all about offering them 
whatever content you do have available, here's a stream of a past performance. If you want to get acquainted, here's it or whatever. I don't know. You know, it looks different for different organizations, but that in my mind is what's so critical. And I find that it seems very baseline in many ways, but so many organizations don't focus on that. And and that is precisely my emphasis on, no, we've got to get this retention engagement plan in place. Otherwise, why are we acquiring all these people if we don't know what to do with them after that? Yeah, 100%. I wondered what you thought the role of newly written music was. Um, I know that you said over the years at um, California Symphony, you managed to start getting, um, I think it was uh, like a newly written piece in each uh, program or maybe in, mm-hmm. in each kind of season or something like that. Yeah, almost every program had new music. Yeah. Brilliant. That's fantastic. You know, here's what's so funny to me. The phrase familiarity breeds contempt, that expression is so not true in classical music. No. The opposite is true in classical music. Familiarity breeds sales. So new music must have a greater emphasis on education in advance so that we're helping the audience and potential audience feel familiar, feel more comfortable so that they will buy a ticket. So this is more work. To do new music is more work on the marketing side, for sure. Like, let's be clear about that. But it's necessary work. And that's what it means to champion new works, right? We're commissioning it, we're putting it out there, or even if we're not commissioning, just an earlier performer of a more newly written piece. That's all good. But yes, on the marketing side, we have, a, we have work to do with our audience so they know why we're playing this, why does it matter, what makes it interesting, what should they be listening for? All of those things are very helpful. And... And it goes back to content marketing for putting those kinds of things out there in return. It's actually driving sales for us if we're doing that well. So that's important. I will also say at the California Symphony, we had built up so much trust with our audience over time. It doesn't happen overnight that eventually it became less about what is on each program. And when we start talking about a longer term strategy, I love getting to this place with organizations. And this goes back to yeah, as a full-time employee, as CEO for many years, I was able to eventually get the organization to this place where, again, generalization, but our audience trusted us. Okay, I know when I go to a California Symphony concert, I will learn something. I will feel welcome and unintimidated about that experience. I will come out feeling probably entertained, hopefully, maybe had fun. I love using that (laughs) word with classical music. We don't use it enough. And if that's the mentality, what that is, that's branding and marketing for the institution, not about this is a specific program, here's what's on it. So to flip that, to say it another way, most of the time in classical music, we tend to focus so much on the program, and that is the the basis of our marketing efforts. And when we do that, it really handcuffs us in many ways because it does become about those blockbuster recognizable names. Mm. So to move away from that and to, again, over time, it's, I'm not saying it's a flip, a switch we flip, but over time getting able to move to, again, this institutional marketing where people say, whatever's on the program, I'm in because I know I'll enjoy it. That's a lot of trust in the organization for somebody to feel that way. So to get to that place eventually really liberates you in terms of programming and you can do much more new music, lesser known music, all of those types of things. That's definitely the dream, isn't it? I mean, maybe it's the reality. It's my dream. <laughs> it's totally the dream. It's, it's, it's hard to get to that place. 
because we we exclusively do new music and i thought through it and i was like well if they don't know anything we're playing like they will just have to trust us it's just about getting to that place where they you know they they really do trust you enough to come back and i think once you've had an experience then it's like oh okay i didn't know anything beforehand and I enjoyed it or I found it uh, interesting or challenging or it was explained and that was like an interesting part of that to me, something resonated with me, then you've got a level of trust. But just getting that person through the door in the first place is, is, is the first step. Right. And I would add to that, this is sort of becoming a pet peeve of mine where so many times organizations wait to educate their audience. And what I mean by that is wait until after the ticket purchase, after the ticket purchase, someone Mm. comes to the concert and that's where they get the pre-concert talk, the program book, the speaking from the stage, the introduction of the pieces. That's all fine that that all happens. Good even that that all happens. But why do we offer that after the ticket purchase? If we, what if we were offering all of those kinds of things well before the concert there's a, there's a study from Google that shows that especially newer attendees across all types of entertainment, not just classical music, take up to 30 days, right? They might even be an average of 30 days for their consideration cycle. So that means 30 days in advance of the concert, we need to be providing information. So why not use that same content that would be the pre-concert talk put that online or have the program notes and publish it as a blog post. The California symphony does that now. What about um, those same introductory remarks that a musician would make before the piece in the concert? Why not do a little video and put that out online in advance, repeat it at the concert. That's fine. You know? And so those are like, when I talk about content marketing and education, like all of that starts coming together in this way. And when we offer those things in advance, again, it's, it's the gateway of, Oh, I get what to the audience member. Oh, I get what they're doing. Now I will offer my money in exchange for this experience because I, I see what it is. I love that. <laughs> we, we'll start doing that. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I swear. <laughs> um, great. I've got two last questions for you. I think firstly, well, this is my kind of zero question is that um, people should definitely read your blog post about about your public commitment to diversity. That's the best way to word it. Mm. I just wrote in um, racism board in my notes, and that's not really a very good description of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a public commitment to diversity it should definitely read that about how to commit systemic change, because everyone talks about systemic change and you create a systemic change by making changes from the top and letting it influence everything below it so i won't ask you to go over that now but people should definitely read that second last question what's something that you saw an arts organization do recently that had you just going like yes they get it i get this question a lot these days okay. <laughs> and i it, it took me i'll give a couple different examples i feel like only recently have i finally seen some classical music organizations like really have that reaction. Yes, they get it. So it's taken eight months now of pandemic for us to get there. But now I'm excited to share that. Yeah, I see, I'm seeing this more. So I'll, I'll back up though. At the beginning of the pandemic, this is not classical music. This is a theater, but the Geffen Playhouse in LA early on in the pandemic, I think it was March or April, they, they were, everybody else was just going dark, canceling concerts left and right, canceling performances. They created a, production to be delivered online over zoom sold tickets 
ended up selling out this run and extended the run. It ended up being sold out May through October or something like that. LA Times did a story on them. It ended up being like a tenth of their normal revenue, typical or equivalent of what would have been a five or six weeks, I think, traditional theatrical run on their stage. I mean, really significant revenue that they were able to charge from like creating content specifically for this medium and virtual world that we find ourselves in right now. And they were one of the first arts organizations that I had seen going there and doing that, not just trying to figure out how do we sort of tweak what we normally do and put it out there. So I've, I've just been telling that story to anybody who will listen. I think the Geffen Playhouse was just a first mover in that. Since then, uh, two examples come to mind for classical music. This is very recent. Um, just recently, the San Francisco Symphony released a virtual production called Throughline, and it was uh, it was a stream performance intermixed with different videos, conversations, different genres, had everything from a local hip-hop artist and a work they had done in coordination with the symphony to a Beethoven string quartet, so very traditional, typical, all the way to culminating in a piece that they had commissioned specifically for this time. And the piece was called Through Line, hence the name of the whole uh, production. And I thought that was the first orchestra I have seen commission a work specifically for recording dispersed all across the country. Some of these artists were uh, specifically for uh, working to a click track to make that come together, but also using their new music director, Esabeka Salonen. And it just brought all these different things together. And I thought, well, how, I don't know, I was just captivated. It was, it was new, it was different. It was written expressly for this moment we're in. And that had me hooked. And of course it's, it's the San Francisco symphony. So it sounded amazing. And uh, I just thought that was, that was definitely a moment where I thought, yes, an orchestra is not trying to, like I said, just tweak what we do normally, but instead came up with something new made for this virtual medium delivered in a really well-produced way. So kudos to them. I'll share one more. And that's just um, last night, Carnegie Hall released a tribute to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So beloved Supreme Court justice by many here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. recently passed in September. And they had a mix of performances and interviews, stories, photos about her love of opera. It's well known here that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a huge opera fan was so regularly at Washington national opera and even performed with them a few years ago. And so they had excerpts of that and brought in different opera stars that she had relationships with and mixed in her work for equality through that. Um, and like I said, in addition to having some performances that were relevant to her and that was again super timely not at all what I think of as a traditional or typical offering from Carnegie Hall and yet so relevant so lovely so well done so again another moment where I thought yes in this moment we're in they get it they nailed it so more and more I'm finally seeing from classical music organizations this willingness to put aside the way we normally do it and say nope this calls for something different a real mixture of things as well, which I suppose speaks to a more mixed media um, environment we're in at the moment mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, exactly. Final question, slightly sillier. Um, 
you you throw aside all of your uh, executive consulting marketing work to refocus on being a tuba player what do you play in your tuba quartet oh my gosh it's been so long since i played oh oh gosh it would have to be it would have to be not tuba music I, the more I, i'm so appreciative my teacher made me made me learn how to read different claps and he was like basically if you want to play super good music you need to play not tuba music i'm paraphrasing but so it'd have to be something not written for tuba that was super cool and interesting <laughs> i actually saw a tuba quartet play once and it was incredible oh i'm yeah i love oh, now i'm gonna wax poetic i love the tuba i really do it's such a it's such a stereotype instrument and yet when you get to see really wonderful players it's just it's so cool <laughs> Uh, Aubrey thank you so much for your time thank you so much for talking to me I, I really appreciate it you're very welcome this is a real pleasure you have great really stimulating questions I appreciate it oh thank you um, where can people find you online what should they do to to hit the tripwire and, and join your mailing list <laughs> please thank you for saying that please follow me <laughs> at Aubrey Bergauer on pretty much every social media channel Instagram Twitter LinkedIn I have a professional Facebook page my website is AubreyBergauer.com that's where you can join the email list and read my blog posts they're all on the website as well and um, I hope you I hope anybody who hears this um, will come connect with me I'd love to see you Thank you.